Well, the last um, month, this last month, I had the opportunity to uh, teach our college students uh, in their new classroom, the chair closet over there uh, in the wall. It's like the hidden classroom. It's like one of the nicest classrooms we got. What are you talking about? So great, great space. But uh, as I was thinking and, and praying about what I could teach them uh, for those first uh, three weeks or four uh, in January, um, what the Lord directed me to was uh, talking about how to discern God's will for your life. I thought that was something that college kids and their stage of life, that's a huge question. Always trying to discern, hey, what does God want me to do? Where does he want me to go to school? Where does he want me to, what major should I choose? What career should I choose? Who should I marry? All those kinds of things. And so after talking with the students for a number of weeks, I I thought, you know what? This is so important. This is just not for college kids. This is for every kid. This is for every Christian. Because I think one one of the biggest questions most frequently asked by Christian people in general uh, is how can I know the will of God for my life? You ever ask yourself that question? How can I know the will of God for my life? And so I'm going to tell you what God's will is for your life. We're going to do a series here for the next few weeks called God's will for your life. Aren't you excited that you're going to know what God's will is for your life? When this is all over, you're going to know God's will for your life. Um, Usually we ask that question when we're facing some kind of decision that we need to make in our lives. And all of us face hundreds of decisions uh, every day. Uh, Some of these decisions are small and insignificant because the consequences of those decisions are insignificant, like the clothes that you chose to wear today, what you chose to have for breakfast this morning. I would imagine that most of you don't try to discern God's will for your lives in these small, unimportant decisions. And I don't think anyone was praying in front of their pantry this morning, Lord, would you show me what, 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 what your will is as regards, should I, do you want me to eat the, the, the Cocoa Krispies, or do you want me to eat the Frosted Flakes, or the granola? Lord, I just need to know your will. Show me what is your will for my life. You just grabbed a box and, and, and poured it in the bowl and the milk, and you went for it. Um, but then there's big, important decisions that involve all very serious consequences, like where do I go to college? What do I choose to do for a career? Uh, who should I marry? How many children should we have? Uh, should we adopt a child? Uh, that's often a big decision. Should we make that move? Should I take that job? Uh, should I go on that missions trip? Should I make that investment? Um, should I opt to have that surgery or not to have that surgery? Or should our child have that surgery or not have that surgery? These are major decisions. And oftentimes when we face these major decisions, we, we don't know what we should do. And we find ourselves in this frantic search to find out what God wants us to do. Now, apart from my decision to follow Christ, I consider my decision to marry Kelly as the most important decision that I ever had to make in my life. And uh, we met at the Master's College, and uh, we were, um, had mutual friends, and uh, we really didn't know one another, and, uh, and uh, it was spring banquet season, and so we were all, all the guys were on a hunt, were on the hunt, you know, to find a girl to, to invite to spring banquet. And so uh, I really didn't 
have any desire to go to the spring banquet, didn't really like anybody, uh, and so I was just kind of minding my own business and thought I was going to not go to the spring banquet until that night in the cafeteria when I was eating my dinner, rushing to get to an evening class, and I looked across the crowded cafeteria, and there she was. <laughs> and I thought, man, she's really cute. And, and so anyway, I went back to my room and, and uh, told my roommate, I said, hey, I think I found somebody I want to ask to the spring banquet. And so, make a long story short, um, I got a ladder, climbed up to her second story window, <laughs> borrowed some lipstick from another girlfriend, uh, not a girlfriend, a friend that was a girl, right? And uh, I just want to make sure y'all wasn't too time in here, okay? But <laughs> got this lipstick and I wrote on the window, I said, Kelly... Uh, could I have the privilege of escorting you to the spring banquet, Ken Ramey? If yes, please carry the rose today. And I did the, I committed the cardinal sin of cutting one of the roses on campus and putting it on her, on her air conditioner unit outside of her second story window. And so the goal was I had filled in her roommate and said, hey, you know, I know Kelly really doesn't know me, but I know you tell her I'm not such a bad guy and encourage her to go with me, you know, and so the next morning, they woke up and opened the curtains, and there was this message uh, that Kelly read, and her roommate's like, so, are you going to go? And she's like, I don't even know the guy. And uh, <laughs> anyway, the rest is history. Um, well, and there was a lot that went into that relationship um, over, over several months, years, as we uh, got to know one another, as we began to officially date one another. Um, and we, we were pursuing God's will together, whether or not we should be married. And uh, just so you know, I was an absolute mess through that entire process um, because I was not sure whether or not she was God's will for my life. And that really mattered to me when I was a young college student that I wanted to make sure I didn't miss God's will for my life. I had the rest of my life in front of me, and uh, she was Kelly was the first girl I ever officially, like seriously, committed myself to, and so I had nothing to compare to, and, and so I, I was like, how, how do I know? And so um, I got the sense really soon in our relationship that she was ready to roll. She, she was just like, hey, I, I met my husband, I'm good to go, and that freaked me out because I wasn't there in my heart. And so uh, I broke up with her numerous times um, and got back together again and just trying to figure out, Lord, is, this, uh, is she the one? And I literally agonized over that decision. I mean, I searched the scriptures expecting God to give me a verse or verses that would prompt me to do what he wanted me to do. I sought counsel from just about everybody. Hey, what do you think I should do? What do you think I should do? Uh, I I fasted. I prayed. I mean, I vividly remember laying uh, face down, prostrate on the floor of my dorm room, begging God to show me what he wanted me to do. And my roommate would come in and go, dude, you're weird, okay? Um, it's not that complicated, all right? And, and so, I mean, and, and this is, these are the things I prayed. I would pray things like, Lord, would you orchestrate the circumstances? Give me a special sign. Help me to hear your still, small voice. Grant me peace one way or the other. And, and the prayer I prayed most was this. God, I know, God, God, God you, I know you know my heart. And I want to do your will more than anything else in my life. Just show me what it is and I'll do it. And you know I'm willing to marry whoever you want me to marry. doesn't matter what I like or don't like about Kelly. The only thing that matters is, is she or is she the one you want me to marry? And so you may assume by the fact that 
we're celebrating 25 years of marriage in just a couple months here, uh, that all of that zealous effort to discern God's will paid off. God answered my prayers. He showed me clearly. I heard his still small voice. My heart flooded with peace. And that's when I decided to marry Kelly. Wrong. In fact, it was the exact opposite. I was more confused than ever. I wavered back and forth. One day I felt like God was telling me, yes, give me the green light. The next day I felt like he was saying, no, give me the red light. Uh, Not only was I confused, I was scared. I was scared to death that I was going to make a wrong decision and marry the wrong person and miss God's best for me and, and wreck my entire life. And then on the other hand, if she was God's best for me, if I didn't marry her, I would be missing God's best. And I was just going crazy, literally. And, uh, and then God threw in the mix to an NFL running back um, when one of our, hey, I'm not sure you're the one for me, give me some more time. Um, no lie, there's some girls at school that I still think about, so I need to go back and figure this out. These are the kind of conversations I would have. I was a jerk, basically. So I was a jerk. And, and so, I, so through the grapevine, I hear that, uh, and, and you know my wife's a Seahawks fan. She's still in mourning this week uh, as of last week's uh, Super Bowl uh, turnout. But, but the re- there's a reason why she's so passionate about the Seahawks, not just because she grew up in Seattle, but because she used to go to church uh, where uh, the pastor was a former Seahawks. Uh, used to play uh, for the Seahawks, and he, was, he became a pastor, and then, of course, he ministered to a lot of the Seahawks. They would come, the Christians on the team would come, and, and they were part of this church. And she, she, she served for a few years there. I guess it was just a, a year as the church secretary. And, uh, and so all these Seahawks guys would be coming in to see Pastor Hutch. And, and, uh, and so one of these, one of these uh, guys came through one day and asked her out on a date. Uh, you, you might not remember the guy, Kurt Warner, not the quarterback Kurt Warner, but the running back Kurt Warner, uh, had asked her out on a date. And uh, I heard that through the grapevine. I thought, oh, God, I'm, I'm, I'm history. I, I can't compete with an NFL running back. I mean, I'm, I'm out of the picture now. Clearly, this is not your will for my life um, because you just shut this sucker down. And uh, so anyway, um, thankfully, um, she picked me over an NFL running back. So just kidding. Um, <laughs> So, I mean, she could have been on the sidelines cheering the Seahawks on, but anyway. Um, so I was confused, I was scared, and I was also frustrated. I was, I was just plain frustrated. It was like, are you kidding me? Does this have to be so difficult? And I probably said, oh, what the heck, I'm going to marry her. You're like, that doesn't sound very romantic. Um, well, and, and I'll just tell you how bad it, it, it got, um, you know, we, we videotaped our, our wedding. It's still on a VHS, by the way. So if anybody knows how to transfer that to, like, Blu-ray or something, I'd be much, much appreciate that, okay? But it's still on a VHS. So well, I remember we, we watched the video after we got married. And, and, of course, you know, we're sitting there on the couch, re-watch, reliving our wedding. And, and, uh, and so right before, you know, the candle lighters came down and, and then Pastor came out. And it was Pastor Hutch, this former Seahawks player. And, and, and so I was standing behind him, and the camera zoomed onto me, and, and we were getting ready to go down, you know, and, and this thing was going down. Um, and so I, I, I just bowed my head, and I was kind of like this, and of course, we're sitting there on the couch after the fact, and Kelly's like, what were you thinking right then? <laughs> she wants to know what I'm thinking, okay? And I had to be honest with her, 
And I said, honey, honestly, what I was praying at that moment is said, Lord, I hope this is the right decision. That's what I was praying. <laughs> because I was second-guessing myself again. Uh, Lord, this is so complicated. How can I not figure out your will? And so, please know, okay, I'm not, second my, second, I'm not still second-guessing myself, all right? The longer I'm married to Kelly, the more I realize that God gave me far more than I anticipated, far more than I deserved. She's been nothing but a continuous, wonderful helpmate, a perfect compliment for me. God graciously blessed me in spite of all my misguided attempts to figure out whether or not it was his will for me to marry her. But as I look back at that decision, I've had to ask myself some questions. Like, why was it so hard for me to discern God's will when I was sincerely and humbly seeking it? I mean, I really, really, really wanted to know God's will, and why was it so hard to discern what it was? And then why, second question, why after making that decision did I lack the certainty that I made the right decision? Why was I second-guessing myself? Well, as I've grown and matured in my relationship with Christ and gained a deeper understanding of the Bible over the years, it's become clear to me that my problem was that I had some misconceptions about how to know the will of God. In fact, what's worse, I had an inaccurate view of God's will, period. And that's why I was so confused and so scared and so frustrated. And and I would say this, I, I think that that confusion and that fear and that frustration that I experienced are not uncommon. I know many of you probably experience some of the same things when you're faced with a major life decision. And I believe the reason is because, like me, you have some misconceptions about how to discern the will of God. Many of us expect God to reveal His will to us in ways He never told us He would. And so that's why before we talk about how to discern God's will... We need to talk about how not to discern God's will. And, and, and just to warn you, okay, I'm going I'm to warn you right up front here this morning that what I'm about to say this morning is likely going to raise more questions in your mind than provide answers. And there's a method to my madness, okay? So just trust me on this. Um, you may leave here this morning more confused, more frustrated than you've ever been about God's will. Because what you're going to hear may go against everything you've ever heard or read or learned about how to discern God's will. But it's imperative that you understand that by and large, we as Christians tend to rely on unbiblical ways to discern the will of God for our lives. And you need to be aware that there are some popular materials and and, and books floating around today that are leading people astray when it comes to knowing and doing the will of God. And so I simply want to challenge you this morning to think more biblically about this whole issue. And so please listen carefully. Don't, don't tune me out. And hopefully by the time we finish in a few weeks, you'll, you'll, you'll have a deeper and, and clear understanding of how to discern God's will for your life. So this morning, what I want to do is just talk about seven wrong ways to discern God's will. Seven wrong ways to discern God's God's will. Hopefully you grabbed uh, an outline uh, on your way in and some application questions on the back, um, and you can just follow along uh, with me as I go. But let's look at these wrong ways to discern 
God's will. Number one, the improper interpretation and application of Scripture. Okay, the improper interpretation and application of Scripture. Now, it's easy to know what we should or shouldn't do when it comes to decisions that the Bible clearly addresses. There are specific instructions or directions. Like, you don't have to ever after wonder, is it God's will for me to honor my father and mother? You never have to wonder about that. That is God's will because it clearly says, honor your father and mother. Uh, you don't have to after ever wonder, hey, is it God's will uh, for me to cheat on my spouse? No, obviously not because God says, do not commit adultery. Um, is, is it ever, you know, uh, what, what, is it God's will, you know, that, that uh, I get a job that requires me to miss church? Um, well, the Bible says, remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy, right? Um, probably not the best idea, not forsaking the, the assembly of yourselves together. Scripture is very clear, Hebrews 10, those kinds of things, okay? But there are many decisions that we face in life that the Bible doesn't directly tell us what we should or shouldn't do, like what college should I go to, what career should I choose, who should I marry, uh, how many kids we should have, should we adopt, um, uh, should, should I make this investment, things we've already talked about. And at those times, I think we're tempted to read between the lines, if you will, looking for some special word from the Lord. And so we'll be reading along in Scripture, and we come across a verse that contains a word or a phrase that we think is God's answer to our dilemma. And so we carelessly rip that phrase or that verse completely out of its grammatical and historical context, and we wrongly apply it to our situation, even though the passage has absolutely nothing to do with us. Can, can I give you an example of this? I turn to Jeremiah chapter 29. Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11, a very familiar passage uh, that we as Christians today love to apply to our situation. I think there is obviously some principles here that are timeless uh, that we can apply, but we need to understand who this was originally written to in its context. Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 10. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. So obviously we know that God is speaking to who? The nation of Israel, and they are in exile in Babylon. They've been there for 70 years because of their disobedience uh, to the commands of, of the Lord. Verse 11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity to give you a future and a hope. And so in other words, he's saying, hey, listen, I've got great plans for you. You're going to come back out of exile. I'm going to reestablish you in the land of Israel, and you've got great things in your future, uh, particularly uh, what, we, what we know as the second coming of Jesus Christ, or at this point, the coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. Verse 12, then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. And so I think that's a general principle there that when we seek the Lord that, uh, and search for him, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll find him. He'll reveal himself to us. Um, but this was a passage that, that I read during those weeks and months when I was trying to sort out if Kelly was the one. And it just so happens that at the time I read this, that we had broken up 
It was a mutual breakup. We decided, hey, you know what? This is not honoring to the Lord if we're not on the same page with where we're at in our hearts with one another. It's best that we're not together. And so we were during this, we were during this time of, of breakup. And, and so we were just, uh, and, and it was killing us because we really enjoyed one another's company. We really wanted to be together. We just didn't feel like it was the right time for us to do that. And so I'm reading along, and I'm reading this, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for wealth, for not for calamity, give you a future. I'm like, okay, that's encouraging, because I'm really miserable right now. Uh, I'm not sure what the future holds. God's promising me that I've got a great future in store. He's got a great future in store for me. I'll call upon you and come and pray to you, and I'll listen to you. I'm like, Lord, I'm doing that. I'm praying, and, 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 and I'm seeking your face. I'm, I'm seeking you. I want to find you, and I'm searching for you with all my heart. I'm on prostrate. Man, I'm fasting. What else could I do, God? I'm like, oh, man, this is good stuff. And then I get to verse 14. I will be found by you. I'm like, yes, that's what I'm looking for. And I will restore your fortunes, and I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from where I sent you into exile. No lie, I'm not making this stuff up. I thought, that's it. Kelly and I are in exile right now. We're, we're broken up, and so we're in this exile. And what God is saying here to me is that He wants to bring us back to the place where we were before we went into exile. He wants me to go and, and, and reconnect with Kelly, and we're going to start dating again. I'm, not, I'm, I'm serious. I, that's what I, I, I interpreted that. I, I applied it to myself and my situation. I actually ran down of all places to my Greek class. Here I am learning how to study Greek, okay, the original language, and make sure so you don't rip things out of context. And I told the buddy next to me, hey, check this out. This is what God told me today through his word that, that, that Kelly and I have been in exile, and he wants us to get back together again. And, uh, and so guess what? We got back together again based on this proof text. <laughs> Scary stuff, right? I mean, you can kind of get wacky here and, and you can basically find anything you want to, to justify anything that you want to do in Scripture. And so I just ripped that sucker right out of context and, and, uh, and, and misapplied it to my situation. Now, there's some people will use the Scriptures maybe in a different way. It's you know, you've got the context rippers. I was an example of that. You also got the lucky dippers. It's like, okay, Lord, I really need a word from you today. So you open your Bible and you do one of these deals. Seriously, there are some people that, that do that. That's how they rely on God to speak to them. And, and so, you know, they're assuming that God's going to tell them what to do through this, you know, lucky, I'm going to open it up and point to something. Well, my question is, what happens when you're feeling depressed and you open up your Bible looking for God to speak to you, and you, your finger lands on the verse that says, Judas went away and hung himself. <laughs> I mean, seriously, what, what are you supposed to do at that point? Is, is God saying something? No, he's not speaking to you. And so we need to be very careful when it comes to the Word of God. Good thing that you're in the Word, seeking God's will in his Word. That's a good thing, but be careful that you don't improperly interpret it or improperly apply it. Uh, to your life. So that's the first wrong way uh, to discern the will of God. How about number two is circumstances? Circumstances. When it comes to discerning the will of God, you often hear people say things like, well, there was this open door. God opened the door. God closed the door. And, And we refer to circumstances as open and closed doors. And there's nothing wrong with that term, by the way, open door. It's a term that's used throughout the New Testament. You can see it in the book of Acts, 
um, in 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Colossians, Revelation, there's a number of verses that, that talk about open doors and closed doors. But what we need to understand, if you look at those references in their context, um, the open doors in the New Testament refer to opportunities to share the gospel. They're specifically ministry opportunities. It's not like something related to your job or your career or some decision you had to know. It's about sharing the gospel. They have nothing to do with God guiding or directing you uh, whether or not you should buy that new car or go into this new business venture necessarily. Furthermore, we need to never assume that just because a door is open that it means we're supposed to walk through it. I mean, Paul was in Troas in, in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. He said there was a, a, a wide open door for ministry there in Troas. And he was thinking, okay, God, thanks for leading me here. Well, God says, no, I don't want you to go to Troas. I want you to go to Macedonia. And he, he redirected him. He, he moved him away from this open door so he could go and minister somewhere else. Jay Adams has written a great book called The Christian's Guide to Guidance. It's one of the books I brought up with me this morning. If you were going to read a book about uh, biblical decision-making, this is uh, The Christian's Guide to Guidance, How to Make Biblical Decisions in Everyday Life by Jay Adams. Excellent, excellent resource, um, and, and I would encourage you to consider uh, reading through this book. We have them in our resource center there, but he talks a lot about uh, these wrong ways that we have gotten in the habit of seeking to discern God's will, very helpful resource. What he says here is, quote, some open doors lead to elevator shafts. And that's true. I mean, you, you could say, well, I'm just going through this door. I mean, the, the problem with trying to discern God's will through circumstances is that you have to interpret the circumstances. For example, say there was a young person who felt God's call on their life to go uh, into full-time missions. And, and they wanted to go to India. They had set their heart, I'm going to go and be a missionary in India. And so they go and they apply for their visa and they get turned down for their visa. What does that mean? That there's a circumstance. What, what is God trying to tell them? Well, if I went around and said, hey, what do you think God's trying to tell them? Some of you would say, well, maybe he shouldn't be a missionary. Others of you say, well, maybe God doesn't want him to go to India. Maybe he wants him to go to Africa. Or someone would say, you know what, I think this is a test, and, and God's just wanting to see if this guy's willing to go to India even if he has to swim to get there. Right? I mean, how do you know what, what God's saying through those circumstances? We, we don't know for sure. I might look at a situation and, and conclude that God is saying one thing, whereas you might look at the same situation, the same set of circumstances, and interpret them in a totally different way. It's like the farmer who went out into his field one day, and he looked up, and he saw, he saw this, the, the clouds had formed the, the, these two letters, a, a huge P and a huge C, and he's like, wow, that's amazing, and he calls his wife, honey, come quickly, you've got to see this, and she looks up, and he says, look, God wants me to preach Christ, and she looked at him and says, well, how do you know he's not telling you to plant corn? I mean, it's true. I mean, how do you know what, how to interpret that stuff? And sometimes we think that if we wait long enough, we can expect the circumstances, right, to make decision for us, and sometimes they do. Uh, really, circumstances don't make decisions for us. They simply bring us to the place where we have to make a decision. And so it's, the point is this. It's dangerous to try to interpret God's providence while you're in the midst of that challenging situation or that 
facing that decision. Um, typically, God's providence is a lot clearer after the fact, right? At, at hindsight's twenty twenty, and you get past that decision, and you look back and go, wow, how cool is that? I mean, God totally did all that stuff. Now we can see it, right? Trying to figure it out ahead of time, man, get out the dice and start throwing them because you don't know. You can't outthink God, outmaneuver God. And so we have to be careful about circumstances. Number three, another wrong way to discern the will of God is through our feelings and impressions. Our feelings and impressions. And this one, this one will strike a chord, I guarantee, with, with some of you. Um, because oftentimes you hear people say things like, you know, I sense God's direction. Or I feel God is leading me to do this. Or, or God laid this burden on my heart to do this. Or I have a peace about it. Or my spirit was just uneasy. Or, you know, I just don't feel good about it. And so sometimes we expect God to, to prompt us by giving us some warm, fuzzy feeling or some spiritual goosebumps about a certain decision. And the bottom line is our feelings can't be trusted. I mean, they could be caused by any number of things. They could be caused by God. They also could be caused by a demon. They could, they could be caused by the weather, a lack of sleep, medication that you're on, something that you ate. And besides, can we really feel God's presence or God's leading? I mean, think about that for a second. I don't mean to... to um, mechanicalize, if, I, if that's even a word, mechanize our relationship with the Lord, but we talk about feeling close to God or not feeling close to God. Well, God is a spirit. He's immaterial. He's intangible. He's invisible. No, there's nothing about him that we can feel. My question is, what is, he, what is he supposed to feel like anyway? The Bible never says to make decisions based on peace or inner promptings or impressions from the Holy Spirit. And, and they can be very dangerous if, if that's all you're relying on is your feelings or your impressions. How about this, number four, signs and dreams. Signs and dreams. Sometimes we, we rationalize what God's will is because of some sign or unique event in our lives, right? This is the, the classic uh, ladies, okay, I'm going to pick on you for a second. You go to the mall and you see this dress that you absolutely love. You're like, oh, it's so awesome, I want this dress, and you look at the price tag, and it's $20, and guess what? You have $20 bill in your pocket, and so that must be the will of God. It got, God provides, amen, thank you, God, right? This, this is God's telling me, right, that he wants me to buy this dress because it's, I have the same exact amount of money that I need to get that dress, or maybe you're driving down the road. Guys, this might be more for us. We're driving down the road. We're praying about something. We're thinking about something. We're conjuring a decision. And at the very moment, some song comes on the radio about the same thing. And we say, I know that God was telling me what he wanted me to do because the, 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 the person on the radio said this or the song, there was a lyric in the song that said this. And so we take that as a sign from God. God was speaking to us through that that um, disc jockey on the radio or, or, or through the, the lyrics of that, of that song. Other times, we can't figure out what we're supposed to do, and we actually ask God to give us a special sign. We set up some condition. Like, God, if we sell this house, then we'll know it's your will for us to move. Again, we've probably all done that, thought that, prayed that, but is that really 
the, the determining factor, whether or not we should move, is if God sells the house. That, that may be a factor, but should it be the factor? Or how about this one? If she sits next to me, I know that God wants me to ask her out. If she says, here she comes, okay, here we go. Yes! Thank you, God, for making that clear to me, right? We, we, we set up these signs. Th- this method of discerning God's will is often referred to as setting out a fleece. You familiar with that expression? We, we get it from Gideon uh, back in Judges chapter 6. An and interesting story that uh, Gideon uh, was one of the judges that God raised up um, in a very difficult time in the, in the history of Israel where everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes and, and, and they would be punished by various enemy nations and, um, and God would raise up uh, certain judges and they would conquer these enemies and restore peace. And so Gideon was the latest judge in Judges chapter 6 and God visited him through the angel of the Lord and said, hey, I'm going to raise you up and you're going to defeat uh, these people. And, uh, and, and God gave him all these promises that he was going to uh, be used by him to defeat the Midianites and the Amalekites and and all these people. But notice in Judges chapter 6, verse 36, then Gideon said to God, if you will deliver Israel through me as you've spoken, behold, I'll put a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. There is dew on the fleece only, and it is dry on the ground. Then I will know that you will deliver Israel through me as you've spoken. So pretty creative. Hey, I'm going to put a fleece out there. I'm going to put a little lamb's wool out there. And in the morning time, if there's dew on the fleece, but the ground is dry, I'll know that you're going to use me to deliver Israel. And it was so. But notice it goes on. When he rose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece, he drained the dew from the fleece, a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God, do not let your anger burn against me that I may speak once more. Please let me test Make a test once more with the fleece. Let it now be dry only on the fleece and let there be dew on all the ground. In other words, he switched the, 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 uh, the, the, um, the criteria here. And God did this so that, did, did so that night for it was dry only on the fleece and dew was only on the ground. The question is, Gideon knew that God had a right to be mad at him for not having faith. Not for questioning. God, God clearly had told Gideon that he would use him to deliver Israel from the Midianites, but he asked God to give him a sign, and his request for a sign demonstrated fear and a lack of faith in God's word. And again, God knew, or, or Gideon knew that God had a right to be angry at him for testing him and asking him for, for, for a sign. Um, in other words, this is not a good example to follow. Don't say, yeah, I'm going to set out a fleece. Okay, Gideon. Go ahead. Demonstrate your lack of faith. Demonstrate your fear, right? This, this was not an example to follow. In fact, Jesus rebuked the Pharisees for asking him to show them a sign to prove that, he, that, that who he said or what he said was true. Matthew 12, 39. A wicked and adulterous generation asked for a miraculous sign. It reminds me of the story of a, of, of a guy who... Uh, had been trapped in a flood, and he, was, he managed to get to the top of his house. He was standing on this roof, and the water, the flood waters were rising, and he, he cried out, save me, God. And, and along came a canoe with some guys who said, hey, come on down. We'll, we'll take you to safety. He says, no, no, no. God's going to save me. And then he says, save me, God. And then here comes the Coast Guard, and they're coming in their little ship now, and he says, hey, come on, jump on. No, no, no. God's going to save me. 
And then so he cries out again, God, save me. And then all of a sudden, here comes the helicopter. Now the Coast Guard's got the helicopter, and they lower the thing. And they say, no, 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 waves them off. God's going to save me. Well, the guy ends up drowning, and he gets to heaven and says, God, why didn't you save me when I cried for help? And God said, I sent two boats and a helicopter. What else did you want? So it's looking for this sign. Hey, God provides uh, in, in very practical ways. What about dreams? Some people come, have come to me over the years all excited about some dream they had, and they want me to, to give me their pers- my perspective on what God was trying to tell them. Hey, what, I had this dream. What, God, what is God trying to tell me through this? And I say, I have absolutely no idea. I mean, it could mean you have an overactive conscience. It could mean that you ate a large pepperoni pizza and a two-liter bottle of Mountain Dew before you went to bed last night. I don't know why you had that dream. So they're very subjective. I, I don't know. You might think it means one thing. I could tell you it means something else. Get everyone else to weigh in on it, and we could all say a million different things. But typically, we say, wow, that's so cool. How about prayer? Now, this is where I said, listen carefully here. Uh, don't, don't tune me out here. One of the other wrong ways that we try to discern the will of God is through prayer. And I think what I mean by that is there's this popular misconception among Christians today that prayer is a two-way communication with God. That we share our request with God and then we listen for His answer. We're told, and there's lots of books out there, you can go down to the Christian bookstore and, 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 and buy these books, that, that, that you need to learn how to listen to the inner voice of your heart, to that still, small voice of God. And it's very common for people to say that God spoke to me when I was praying, or I heard the voice of God saying to me. Well, can I just say this? God does not speak to us when we pray. He speaks to us when we read His Word. Big difference there. Prayer is not a two-way street. The Bible clearly explains that prayer is us addressing God, not God addressing us. We talk to God in prayer, and He talks to us through the Bible. How about this, number six? Sometimes we try to discern the will of God through counsel. Again, hang in here. You say, well, what's wrong with that? The Bible says, the book of Proverbs says we're foolish if we don't seek the counsel of others. There's wisdom in many counselors. That's true. But that doesn't mean that we should expect God to speak to us through the counsel of others. Um, like we go into a counseling situation and we say, when I, Lord, when I talk to this person, make it clear what your will is for my life. Many times the counsel that people give us is based on their own experience or their own opinion, or, or suggestion. It's not necessarily biblical principles. And, and, and sometimes what people counsel us is dead wrong. I mean, consider Job's counselors. They were way off base. They were saying, Job, you're going through all this because you've sinned. And God's like, you guys are a bunch of knuckleheads, okay? That's not why he's going through all this stuff. I'm trying to make a point to the devil that my people are, are people of integrity, and they worship me for no other reason than I'm worthy to be worshipped. You can take everything else out of these people's lives and they're still going to worship me. So we need to be careful there about counsel and what kind of counsel we receive. Um, and then lastly is, is personal desires. Another wrong way to discern 
the will of God is just, just merely through personal desire. Sometimes we can't figure out what to do, and so we simply resort to doing what we want. And we quote Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself in the Lord, and he'll give you the desires of your heart, as if that's like a covering for whatever we want to do. And so we assume God wants us to be happy, and, and so doing this will make us happy, and so we decide to do it. I've even had people, this is an extreme example, obviously, say, you know what? I know it's God's will that I be happy, and I'm not happy in this marriage, and so I know it's God's will that I get divorced. Really? Well, you just want out of your marriage, but and now you're saying it's God's will? See, the problem with making a decision solely, bla- solely based on personal desires is we don't always desire what God desires. Or is that just me? Do you always desire what God desires? I don't always desire what God desires. We, we don't always want to do what God wants us to do. I mean, look at Jesus in his humanness in the Garden of Gethsemane. He said, take this cup from me, yet not my will but yours be done. Even Jesus in his humanness was admitting, hey, if there was any other way, I, I, I'm, not a, I'm not too excited about dying on the cross here, getting crucified. But not my will, yours be done. And so whenever we make a decision, we need to keep in mind that according to Jeremiah 79, our hearts are deceitfully wicked, so wicked we don't even understand them. And what might seem okay to us simply may be because we have impure motives. Proverbs 16, 2, all a man's ways seem innocent to him, but motives are weighed by the Lord. So it's not always safe to follow your heart's desire without first asking God to purify the motives of your heart and line up your desires with His desires. And so there are seven wrong ways to discern the will of God. Now, the reason why I say they're wrong ways is because nowhere in Scripture are we ever encouraged or instructed to discern the will of God by solely relying on any of these seven things. And yet there are some popular books today that that teach us that these are some of the ways that God leads us and guides us. Probably the best example of this is a book that's been very popular over the last couple of decades. It's called Experiencing God, uh, Knowing and Doing the Will of God, a book written by Henry Blackaby. I'm sure you've all heard of it. It's an extremely popular book. And uh, I think that that this book contains many helpful truths and and insights that have impacted thousands of Christians literally around the world uh, and and helped them develop a closer, more intimate relationship with God. But there are some some statements that are made uh, in that book um, about knowing and doing the will of God that are very disturbing and could be very misleading. In fact, there was an elder, a former elder years ago, uh, that told me, who just very godly, insightful man, he said to me, and I'll never forget this, he said he felt that that book, Experiencing God, would do more damage to this generation of Christianity than anything else because of statements like this. Quote, God speaks uniquely to individuals, and he can do it in any way he pleases. Just think about that. God speaks uniquely to you, and he can do it in any way he pleases. How about this? Quote, God speaks by the Holy Spirit through the Bible, like that, prayer, circumstances, and the church. And, and basically, what concerns me about those statements is they, they encourage a person to hear 
God's voice in these things and discern how God is guiding and directing their lives through these things. And what it does is it it opens up the, the, the floodgates to receive new, special, private revelation from God. I mean, there's no end to the chaotic and, and confusing claims that people could make about how God spoke to them. There's no way to check the, those things or to verify those things, that people's experiences with God. Um, anything is possible. And, and I don't think that, that God ever intended us to have to figure out His will through experiential and mystical means like, like feelings and impressions and signs and still small voices and, and circumstances. The, the, the Bible, in fact, it's interesting, I, I think the Bible provides a tragic um, illustration of, of the results, uh, what happens potentially when you take an experiential approach to determining the will of God. We don't have time to look at it in depth, but just write down Joshua 9. Joshua chapter 9. And if you remember, uh, God told them when they went into the promised land to make sure that they wiped out everybody in the promised land. Why? Because they, so they wouldn't become a stumbling block to uh, the nation of Israel. And so that, as they were forging ahead through the promised land and taking, uh, you know, destroying everyone in their path and according to God's command, all of a sudden they, they met some people that had come apparently from a far distance. They were called the Gibeonites. And they came to them and they had these donkeys and they had this food and they had these clothes on. And, 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 and they, they, they looked from appearances like they had traveled for miles, hundreds and maybe thousands of miles. And they basically came and said, hey, we've heard about you guys. We know God's hand is on you, and, and we want to sign a peace treaty with you that our people could live peaceably with you, and you wouldn't destroy us. And, and so they looked at their dress, and they saw that their sandals were, were out. They looked in their pouches on their donkeys, and all the food was stale and moldy. And, and, and so they, they assumed that they had come from a very far distance. And so they said, okay, we'll, we'll sign a peace treaty with you. And they did. And then a few days later, they're marching, they're continuing their march through uh, Israel or the promised land. They come up over the hill around the bend and guess who they meet? The Gibeonites who had tricked them, deceived them. Uh, and it says that they, they made the decision without seeking the Lord. They didn't inquire of the Lord. They simply went on appearances they, went, they, they, they basically sized up the circumstances and interpreted the circumstances according, well, it appears that this is what's happening, and they made a decision without inquiring of the Lord, and, and, and they made a huge mistake. And those people continued to be a burr under their saddle uh, for, for years after that because they had, they had gone and made this decision um, not based on God's counsel. Now, I've already admitted that I uh, am guilty, right, of having relied on these kinds of things to determine what God wanted me to do when it came to the biggest decision I was ever going to make in life besides coming to Christ, and that was who I was going to marry. Um, I was expecting God to guide me through these things, and I'm sure that some of you are guilty of the same thing. J.I. Packer said this, in our quest for God's guidance, we become our own worst enemies and our mistakes attest to our nuttiness in this area. And I'll tell you, my decision to marry Kelly is a perfect example of the nuttiness 
that we all sometimes resort to in order to discern the will of God. I mean, I was going out of my mind. Now, let me just provide a balance here, if I could, at this point. Okay, when I say these are wrong ways to discern the will of God, I mean that it is wrong to let any of these things be the the, the final authority or the determining factor in a decision. A number of these things, with with the exceptions of signs and dreams and feelings and impressions, okay, uh, the rest of these things that I've mentioned are part of the decision-making process. Circumstances, prayer, godly counsel, personal desires, accurately understood, properly applied, do come into play in discerning the will of God. God may use some of these things in His sovereignty, in His providence, as factors in revealing to us what His will is, but we must never allow them to be the determining factor. Why? Because they're all subjective standards. And God didn't leave us with with some uncertain subjective means by which He expected us to discern His will. He gave us a better, more sure way than experience to know His will. He gave us His what? His Word, which is the only objective standard for what we should believe and how we should live and the decisions we should make. Turn in your Bibles to 2 Peter, and I'll just close with this passage here, 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, Peter's writing to um, believers who have been scattered all over Asia Minor at the time and enduring all sorts of persecution, and he's uh, writing to encourage them. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, he says, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, we didn't make this stuff up. We're not just passing on some, some stories, some fables, some myths that we picked up somewhere along the way, and we're just kind of telling them now to you, these fairy tales, the story about Jesus Christ. No, we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. We, we saw Him with our own two eyes, And particularly, notice verse 17, for when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. (coughs) What was he referring to there? Transfiguration. And so he's saying, hey guys, we were there. We, we saw, we were eyewitnesses of the transfiguration where, where God revealed uh, Christ's glory. It's as if he peeled back his flesh and revealed uh, his, his glory. And we heard God's voice. Literally, we heard the voice of God from heaven saying, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. We heard it with our we saw it with our own eyes, we heard it with our own ears. I mean you couldn't you couldn't have any better evidence or proof that, that Jesus is real and that what Peter was saying to these people was real than that, right? 
Well, according to Peter, there's something even better and more sure. Verse 19, so we have the prophetic word made what? More sure, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But we know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. And so here's one of the greatest explanations of the doctrine of inspiration, the inspiration of Scripture. And so here Peter is is comparing or contrasting the transfiguration with the inspired Word of God. And what is he saying here? That if you had your choice between seeing Jesus in all of his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration and actually hearing God's voice, audible voice from heaven, and reading your Bible, reading your Bible is a more sure word. You, you have more, you can have more confidence and more proof and more evidence for the things that that we believe based on the Bible. That's radical. I'm sure we say, okay, everyone who wants a glimpse into the glories of heaven and wants to hear God's voice, get in this line, and then everyone who wants to just keep reading their Bibles till Jesus comes back, get in this line. I think we'd all be like, I want to see some stuff. I want to hear some stuff. I want to experience God. That will help me more in my relationship with God. The Bible says, no, you're smarter if you get in this line. And you just keep reading your Bible. It's a more sure word. The point is this. The primary way that God reveals his will to us is through his word. His word is his will. We don't have to look outside or or beyond the Bible to find answers to to, 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 to questions or to make decisions. And when we, and when we try uh, to, to discern God's will for our life through subjective means like these, we're unwittingly undermining the authority and the sufficiency of God's word. I want to talk to you some more about that next week. But as we close, let me just read for you the words of Jonathan Edwards. And this was during the Great Awakening when all sorts of experiential stuff was going on and, and, and he had to really, uh, this great revival had broken out and he had to kind of, uh, kind of manage that and, and make sure that people uh, didn't go off the rails with this thing as they were experiencing this revival and God was doing amazing things uh, in, in the New England area. But, the, but listen carefully, don't check out, listen carefully to what he said. He said, quote, Why cannot we be contented with the divine oracles? the scriptures, that holy, pure word of God, which we have in such abundance and clearness now since the canon of scripture is completed. Why should we desire to have anything added to them by impulses from above? Why should we not rest in that standing rule that God has given to his church, which the apostle teaches a sure, that, that what, what is sure than a voice from heaven? 
And why should we desire to make Scripture speak more to us than it does? They who leave the sure word of prophecy, which God has given us as a light shining in a dark place, to follow impressions and impulses. And if we do, we leave the guidance of the polar star to follow a jack-o'-lantern. You guys know what a jack-o'-lantern is, right? We make them at Christmas, uh, Christmas time. We make them at Halloween, right? These jack-o'-lanterns and this little candle inside of a pumpkin head. Would you rather follow the North Star or the jack-o'-lantern on your front porch? What he's saying is, hey, this is the North Star. This is the polar star right here. Why, why would you want to look to anything or anyone else for direction in your life? Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your word and and how it helps us to understand your will. We know that your word is your will. And Lord, we just confess to you that, that um, we are not satisfied at times, um, not convinced of the sufficiency of your word or the authority of your word, and we undermine those things when we try to look beyond the scriptures uh, for your direction in our lives. Lord, we're thankful that you've given us the surest thing we'll ever have, um, even better than if you were to show up and speak to us audibly from heaven. The Bible is still better and more sure. Help us to really grasp that, Father, in this experiential age where so many Christians are are seeking some experience with God. um, Lord, that we have everything we need in your word. And so, Lord, help us as we process this this message this morning, I pray that we'd be faithful to look into those application questions and, and ultimately be good Bereans and go back to the Bible and, and see what you have said about this issue. And as we study it out together in small groups and in, in our own quiet times, Lord, that, that you would help us to come to the knowledge of the truth. For your glory we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.